There are certain events in our lives that have special significance and meaning to us. And a lot of times, as followers of Christ, these events are also attached to certain biblical passages that have become significant to us as we've gone through these uh, different events or, or circumstances in our life. I shared with you last time I preached uh, a few weeks ago on how Deuteronomy 29.29 is, is one of those passages for me that goes, uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And that passage became uh, really significant to me through seminary for, for several different reasons as I was uh, thinking through the different secret things that belong to the Lord our God and, and how that, that affects me. This morning, we're going to look at a passage uh, of, of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And, and this passage is, a, is another one of those passages for me that really became significant to me. Um, while I was at seminary, I had the opportunity of working at a summer Christian camp called Sida Hills Christian Camp and, and Retreat Center. And for three summers in a row, I got the opportunity of working here. And the very first summer that I went there, all of us uh, camp staffers, got there about two weeks before any of the other campers did for basically training, uh, for learning the, the, the camp philosophy and emphasis and, and how to best minister to the needs of the campers. And a big part of that training was learning what they termed as a reality check. And the reality check was, was a, a memory passage that all of us collectively, uh, permanent staff members and, and, and intern staff members just there for the summer, had to memorize a, a good chunk of, of scripture. And we were, that year, we were studying through the book of Ephesians. And that camp put a really high emphasis on the Word of God and, and made that kind of the driving point for everything they did at that camp. And so we memorized uh, together Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which is a, a pretty large passage there. Uh, one of the ideas behind this idea of reality check was that uh, throughout the camp, as the campers came in, we were meant to, to teach those campers within the, the six days that we had them there. And... Um, uh, as we learned it chunk by chunk, we'd usually learn about two to three verses at a time each and every day. As we went through the camp, if anybody, a, a camper, a, a staffer, a permanent staff member, were to yell out reality check, then uh, everybody had to stop what they're doing. Everybody with an earshot that heard it had to stop what they're doing. It didn't matter what it was, whether it was a game or activity or small group discussion or whatever it was, had to stop what they were doing and repeat the, the memory verse up to that point that we had memorized. And it was associated with, with uh, hand motions and whatnot to kind of help it cement in the, in the kids' minds. Well, one time, uh, we were walking, I was leading a group to the gym, and we had one of our permanent staff members up on the roof who was working on repairing the roof for us. And obviously, it was a slanted roof, and so he's kind of up there awkwardly. And one of our middle schoolers yells out, Reality check! Uh, it was interesting to see uh, all the students immediately kind of looked up to the roof to see, hey, is this permanent staff member actually going to stop what he's doing in the precarious situation that he's in and do the reality check uh, up to that point? And yeah, he did. He, he wanted to be a, a good example to the, the camp staffer, so he stopped working on the roof and balanced himself as best as he could and tried to go through the motions in a, in a limited way, in a safe way, so that he didn't fall off, but did it. And, and uh, one of our uh, summer staff uh, members asked, asked a good question to our camp director. Um, she asked, why do we call it a reality check? And I feel like his, his answer was, was profound um, and, and applies to each and every one of us. And his answer was this. He said, throughout life, we are flooded with all kinds of different messages 
Uh, messages on the billboard, messages on a text message, from TV, from music. We were just flooded with, with hundreds and thousands of messages every single day. And it's important for us to establish regular reality checks within our lives to, to every once in a while hit the, hit the pause button and say, hey, is this message that I'm receiving from the world, this message that I'm paying attention to, that I'm, I'm considering applying to my life, that I'm, I'm thinking about buying into, does that message from the world line up with the, the reality of God's word? Does what the world is teaching me, does it line up with, with the authority of God's word? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is, is a great one of those reality checks. And I think it's important for us as followers of Christ to establish those reality checks. And to every once in a while, um, probably frequently, hit the pause button and say, hey, is the way that I'm living my life, and is the message that I'm buying into, and the, and the way that I conduct myself at work, the way that I'm interacting with my family, the, the, the things I do in my leisure time, do those things line up with the reality of what God's Word teaches, the authority of God's Word in my life? And Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a great reality check for us and one that we can, we can feast on for a long time. And so this morning, I want, to, uh, I want to read through the text for us this morning and then uh, pray for us and then divide it up into two, two sections. I believe this, this text kind of falls into two different sections, two different pictures, really, that, that Paul's painting for us. And the first one will be who we are apart from Christ, and the second one in verses 4 through 10 will be uh, who we are in Christ. But before we get there, I actually, um, a few weeks ago, uh, I had breakfast with our, our brother Mike Abbott, and uh, he was, uh, we were uh, talking um, uh, about what God's doing in our lives, and I was telling him that I was preparing this message, uh, that God had laid this on my heart, um, this passage of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and he kind of chuckles and says, huh, that's funny. Um, our, a few years back, one of our previous pastors uh, led us through this passage and, and taught us this and actually had the entire congregation memorize this passage of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Even the Word of God talks about uh, hiding or treasuring the Word of God within our hearts that we might not sin against God. And I think that's a really important discipline for us to, to all consider and to take very seriously. But let me go ahead and uh, challenge you to, to open up your, your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Whether you have a hard copy yourself, or maybe you're borrowing a copy from uh, the pew in front of you there, um, or using an electronic copy, I, I want us, again, to be, to be rooted in the Word of God this morning. Um, we're not going to have this passage uh, here for you on the screen, um, but we will have every, every cross-reference that we look at this morning available for on the screen. And we do, I do that on purpose because I, I, I want our attention and our, our focus to really be on the text, on the Word of God this morning. Because at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what I say. What matters is what the Word of God says and how that impacts and changes who we are. And so I want our, our attention really to be on this text here, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And I'm going to be reading from the uh, English Standard Version. And so it might be a little different than, than your version or the, mem- the, the version that you had memorized. But I really want our focus to be here this morning. And then uh, after I get done reading, we'll, we'll pray. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you so much for the power of your word. Lord, we pray that um, this morning as we dive into your word and and look at what it has to, to say to us this morning, that you would open up our minds, open up our hearts, and allow us to enter into your presence in a unique and special and powerful way, Father. Lord, we pray that, Lord, you would, you would remove any kind of distraction or temptation from us, Lord, um, that would keep us from allowing your spirit to speak to the depths of our heart and the depths of our soul, Lord. We pray that as we, as we leave this place, Lord, that, um, Lord, we'd be more in love with you than when we first came in here, Lord. We pray that um, this would not just be a, a, a once-in-a-week type of thing, Lord, but that this would be a, a launching pad that would launch us into, into further depths and further, further intimacy with you, Lord, that we would continue to seek you out in your word and continue to allow that word to transform us, to, to make us more and more like you. Father, I pray that that would be the goal of every single one of our lives throughout this week, throughout the rest of our life, Lord, that we would uh, desire above all else to become more and more like you, to be conformed to the image of your Son. Lord, we pray that that would take place this morning. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So I feel like Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 really breaks into two different sections pretty clearly. And the first one, the first three verses we see here is who we are apart from Christ. Who we are apart from Christ. And, and Paul paints a few different pictures here for us. And this first picture that he paints in these first three verses is... It's really an ugly picture. It's a, it's a hideous picture. It's, it, it's terrifying, the, the, the kind of picture that he's painting for us of who we are apart from Christ. And one of, the, one of the big things that we see in these first three verses is that God helps the helpless. God helps the helpless. The idea that God helps those who help themselves is not from the Bible. You don't find that in Scripture anywhere. But it is, it's actually from the ancient Greeks. These verses that, that Paul is writing here in these first three verses uh, paint a picture of, of who we were before Christ and, and why we so desperately need Christ. Notice that these verses are all about us. There's no mention of God in these first three verses. In fact, these verses talk about us, about who we are. Um, and it kind of starts off there, and you, with those first two words there, and you. Um, and remember who he's talking to here. He's talking to the Ephesian church. He's talking to a group of believers, a group of people who, for the most part, uh, if not all of them, have already been sanctified through the blood of Jesus Christ. They are, they are no longer dead in their sins. They have been washed. They have been forgiven uh, for who they are, and they, they are no longer separated from Christ. And so you'll notice that um, throughout these first three verses, he uses the past tense, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is uh, a past tense scenario for them. This is who they used to be. 
So let's take a look at, at verse 1 as we kind of break this down uh, verse by verse. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And that's the first point of, of who we are apart from Christ. We are dead. This is illustrated in, in Luke 15 uh, with the parable of the prodigal son where, where Jesus tells this story uh, of a guy who had two children and one of his children comes to him and, and asks for his inheritance early and he goes away and, and completely squanders everything that his father has given to him and is living a, a pitiful, pitiful, miserable lifestyle and eventually comes to the conclusion that, man, it would be better for me to be a servant, for me to be a slave in my father's household than to live the way that I'm living. And so he, he goes back to his, his father, uh, humbled and humilified um, in this moment, and his father is, is looking out for him and sees him coming from a far distance and runs out to him and, and welcomes him with open arms. And he says here in Luke chapter 15, verses 23 through 24, he says, Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is similar to what, Roman, what, what Paul says in Romans uh, several different times, but kind of starting in Romans 3.23, he establishes the fact that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he kind of expounds on that a few chapters later in Romans 6.23. He says, for the wages are, or for the payment of that sin is death. So in Romans 3.23, he's establishing every single one of us, there's no exception, every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the result of that sin is death. Now there's a lot of talk about sin in this uh, passage in Ephesians that we're looking at and those passages in Romans that we talked about. And uh, it kind of begs the question of, of what is the, the biblical author talking about when he talks about sin. And there's several different words throughout the Bible used to, to illustrate or paint a, a picture for us for, for what sin means. And the specific word used here is a Greek word called hamartia. Hamartia. And uh, the picture that, that they're trying to illustrate here is the idea of missing the mark. Hamartia means to miss the mark. And in that day, obviously, it was used in like bow and arrows. Now, typically, we don't use bow and arrows anymore unless you're like Brother Luke who, who runs around like a, a wild man in the woods shooting after turkeys and deer and who knows what else. But for the majority of us, we don't use bow and arrows anymore. But I did a, a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of uh, going to the shooting range with Mr. Kirk McCauley. And uh, we got to play with a few uh, different toys and, and shoot guns. And uh, it became painfully obvious pretty quickly that Kirk is a much better shot than I am. Um, he is much better at hitting the mark than I am. And I thought I was actually pretty good until Kirk put me in my place. But it kind of comes back to this idea of, of what is the biblical author trying to talk about, uh, trying, trying to paint a picture for us in regards to hitting the mark. And it comes back to um, who is the mark that has been set before us? It's Jesus Christ. And that mark that's been set before us is perfection. And so in order to, to hit the mark uh, of perfection that is talked about in this uh, Greek word hamartia, that means um, that we would, we would have to, when we shoot the, shoot the gun, it would have to, every single shot would have to go through the exact same hole in that piece of paper time and time again, hundreds and hundreds of times. And even though Kirk was a much better shot than I was, um, he wasn't perfect. 
He, he fell short of perfection. And that's exactly what Romans 3.23 is talking about with this, with this word hamartia, that we have all missed the mark. We, none of us is perfect. None of us can, can shoot the target and, and hit through that hole every single time so that there's only, at the end of the day, after hundreds of shots, there's only one hole in that piece of paper. This is the, the idea that's trying to be communicated through us uh, through this use of the word sin. And so we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is the picture that Paul is painting here for us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that includes every single one of us. He goes on in verse 2. says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So apart from Christ, we are dead. Apart from Christ, we are sons of disobedience. Sons of who? Well, this kind of roots back to Adam and Eve. We are sons of Adam and Eve, our parents who acted in disobedience. And this is uh, partially talking about our sin nature um, that we have from birth. Every single one of us is, is born as a sinner. You don't have to teach an infant or a child how to be a brat or how to, to throw a temper tantrum. That's something that Summer and I are, are learning as new parents, as, as our sweet little girl, Neva Grace, um, gets food that she doesn't want and tastes it and gets that scrunched up face and then just chunks it across the room. Those are not things that we have taught her. No, this is part of her sin nature that rebels against the things that she doesn't want when she doesn't get her way. Uh, these are things we don't have to teach one another. So uh, it's rooted back in our ancestry from, from Adam and Eve and from, from the fall. Uh, but it's also, um, there's this mention of uh, following the course of this world. It's not only in our sin nature, but it's also in our individual decisions. Each of us has a decision to, to follow the ways of God or to follow the ways of the world, to follow the ways of Satan. John talks about this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, where he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with his desires. So we have a sin nature that uh, is, is communicated here in this verse. We also have a choice of, of following the ways of God or following the ways of this world. It also talks about uh, the spirit, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work. So who is this prince? Who is this, this spirit that is talked about? And I believe uh, Paul here is referring to, to Satan and the flesh. And the Bible is very clear that, that we are either followers of Christ or we are followers of Satan. There is no in-between. There is no riding the fence. You can't be lukewarm. Jesus talks about spewing you out of his mouth, those who are lukewarm. Uh, Jesus also says you cannot serve two masters. There is no in-between. We are either fully devoted to the things of God and his kingdom, which is a lot of times referred to as an upside-down kingdom, or following the ways of, of Satan and the ways of this world. Verse 3 goes on and says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Apart from Christ, we are dead, we are sons of disobedience, and we are children of wrath. Paul is not painting a very beautiful picture here. In fact, he's painting a very horrid, very ugly picture here for us of who we are apart from Christ. 
And it speaks of the very clear need for evangelism. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I mentioned how um, before that uh, this, is, this is written to the Ephesian church. And it's, it's intentionally written in the past tense of, of who they once were. This is, this is no longer the case for them. This is in the past tense for the Ephesian church. But unfortunately, this is not in the past tense for the majority of the world. The majority of the world is still separated from Christ, is still dead, are still sons of disobedience, are still children of wrath. That's why we have a very clear need for evangelism and why the explanation of sin is a vital part of our declaration of the gospel. Let me say that again. Our explanation of sin is a very vital part of our explanation of the gospel. Why is that? Well, imagine for, for instance, I was standing here and Summer were to come up here and, and throw me a life preserver. That would make no sense. In fact, it would, it would be even worse than that. A lot of people would consider it rude, consider it uh, inappropriate on many different levels. It would disrupt the service and it wouldn't mean anything and it would be irreverent. Uh, just so many different ways in which that would be inappropriate. But take that exact same uh, uh, circumstance and, and change the situation to where I am in the ocean drowning mere, mere seconds from taking my last breath and she were to do the exact same thing, that action has whole new uh, meaning in that moment. And the, the exact same true is, is, is for the gospel and the fact that, man, if we do not explain uh, their need for a savior, the, the concept of, of being saved from their sin means absolutely nothing to them. We have to explain that they are separated from Christ and that their greatest need here in this earth is for a Savior, Jesus Christ. And until we explain that, the idea of a Savior means absolutely nothing to them. Just like the idea of, of a life preserver being thrown to me in this moment would mean absolutely nothing to me. The same is true for the gospel. The explanation of sin is a vital part of our declaration of the gospel. I mentioned before how these reality checks are, are meant to um, combat some of the messages that we receive from the world. And I think it would be helpful for us to maybe think through some of the messages we receive from the world that need a reality check. And I hope in your minds that all kinds of different ideas are popping up in your mind. There's three I want to highlight and, and think through maybe a little bit that I think this text answers pretty clearly for us. Um, first of all, uh, one of the messages that we, we might need to think of a reality check for is, is those who are good get into heaven. That is a, that is a message that has promoted throughout this world, this idea that um, my, good we, my good deeds have to outweigh my bad deeds. And that is, that is the measurement by which God chooses whether I get acceptance into the kingdom of heaven or not. Another one is maybe God is looking for, for good men. Um, we see that that's very clearly uh, anti-biblical. Um, See that Jesus himself, when, when asked, um, when uh, approached, he said, uh, somebody approached him with a good teacher, and he said, wait, no, nobody's good except the Father. There is no one righteous, no, not one. So those who are good get into heaven. God is looking for good men. Maybe another one would be, once saved, it doesn't matter what I do. And I think that's addressed uh, throughout Scripture as well in multiple different ways. And I think will be addressed uh, throughout this text as well. And so maybe keep these in the back of your mind as we continue working through the text and, and think through um, what Paul is trying to teach us throughout this text. I had a good friend of mine who used to work for AT&T as a, uh, 
a land surveyor, and he spent a lot of time on the road and, and a lot of times even just kind of walking along the side of the road. And he was telling me about one day when he was walking along the side of the road and uh, saw up ahead of him uh, a dog lying on the side of the road there. And as he got closer and closer to that dog, he was more and more disgusted by the sight that he saw. It was a dog that obviously had been dead for a couple days and was very bloated, was, was uh, pussy, uh, had maggots crawling all over it, had, had flies flying around it, a very disgusting, very putrid sight. And he walked away from that, and um, as he was thinking about that, he, he was getting actually ready to preach this passage, and it reminded him of what Paul's talking about here, that that condition of that dog that he saw there is the exact same condition that Paul describes of us here. That we are dead in our sins. We are dead in our trespasses. And me and him are both dog lovers, but there is nothing in either one of us that wanted to, to take that dog home with us and to make it a, a pet in our home and have it hanging around. Um, and that, the exact same true is, is true of us and the fact that there is nothing in and of ourselves that make us good, that make us righteous before God. Uh, the Bible talks about how even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before God. That is the condition of who we are apart from Christ. Many think that, that God in the Old Testament was a, was a God of wrath, but the God in the New Testament is, is kind of more like Mr. Rogers. And that's, uh, that's obviously wrong. Um, we see in the New Testament in several different ways that the coming wrath of God is worse than anything in the Old Testament. When Jesus comes back the second time, he's coming back in judgment to judge all the evil and all the wrong that has happened here on this earth. The, the, the words of Hebrews should humble us here where the author of Hebrews says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That should spur us on to evangelism and the fact that it is a terrible thing apart from Christ for us to fall into the hands of a living God. And I guarantee every one of us knows someone, whether it's a family member or a friend, who is still separated from the love of Christ, who is still dead, who is still a son of disobedience, who is still a children of wrath. So I hope this is a, uh, an encouragement to us to be bold, to be faithful and, and sharing the gospel with them. But that's not the end of the story. And thank God, there's hope. But God begins, verse 4, and transition to a whole new picture that Paul's painting for us. He's painted one picture here in these three verses, an ugly, putrid, horrifying picture of who we are apart from Christ. But then he transitions with two amazing, wonderful words, but God, and paints a whole different picture for us. So let's dive into what that looks like for us. And these verses are all about God. We saw in verses 1 through 3 that these verses are, were all about us. These verses from, from 4 through 10 are all about God, but God. Note the contrast here. Um, verse 1 starts off, and you. Verse 4 starts off, but God, and just kind of shows that contrast from the very beginning, from the very first two words, and you, but God. Completely different pictures that are being painted here. And God is always the main character of the Bible, not people. That's one thing that I've learned fairly recently, and I've been trying to teach our students uh, through our redemption studies. We look at different uh, popular stories in the Old Testament. Maybe we look at David and Goliath or Daniel and the lion's den. And growing up, uh, most of the time, uh, as a child, I would, I would think that, man, David or Daniel or whoever is, is kind of the hero of this story. And now that I've got a better understanding of Scripture, I realize that, no, they're not the hero of the story. 
God is the hero of the story and the way that he used these individuals to bring about his own glory and to, to display his majesty throughout the earth. God is always the main character of the story, of, of history, of the present, of the future. He is and always will be the main character of the story. And this is this passage here, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, in the original Greek, this is one long sentence uh, with God here serving as the, the main subject of this sentence in the original Greek. One thing that I think is important for us to understand as uh, this is a kind of a connecting uh, phrase to what follows is that we cannot understand the love of God apart from the wrath of God. It is impossible for us to fully understand the love of God apart from the wrath of God. And that may be a difficult thing for us to, to kind of wrap our minds around. I know for me, uh, a lot of times it's difficult to connect the wrath of God with the love of God. It almost seems like these two don't connect well together. But uh, that's one thing uh, I think we've been learning. Um, maybe a simple illustration would, would uh, help us to, to grasp this a little better. Summer and I um, have, have a deep, uh, overwhelming love for our, our baby girl, Nova Grace. But... Along with that love is uh, a, a connected wrath and anger. What do, what do I mean by that? I mean that because of our love for Nova Grace, anything that would possibly harm Nova Grace or, or, or be uh, a damage to her is something that uh, inside of us wells up uh, a deep sense of hatred for. Anything that would cause any type of harm to Nova Grace is something that we inherently hate. And the same is true of God. Because of his overwhelming, immeasurable love that he has for us as his creation, he inherently hates anything that would cause us to fall away from him, that would drive us away from him. Because scripture talks about how every good and every perfect gift comes from God, the Father of lights. And so anything that would separate us from that God is going to cause damage to us, is going to be harmful for us. And so uh, because of his love, he also has a hatred for anything that would, that would cause a separation from that. Let's go ahead and look at verse 4 here. Verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This great love with which he loved us reminds me of Romans 5, 8, where, where Paul says there, but God demonstrated or shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a beautiful, beautiful verse. But God loved us so, so much that while we were dead, while we were sons of disobedience, while we were children of wrath, in that moment, while we were still living out in a rebellion against God, at that moment, Christ died for us. At that moment, God sent his one and only son to pay our punishment upon the cross for our sins and take upon the wrath that was reserved for us. God always initiates our relationship with him. It was not when we had anything to offer back to God that he came and died for us. No, it was while we were still sinners, while we were still in open rebellion against him. And this thought continues on in verse 5. Let me read that for us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Who we are in Christ, God has made us alive. Made us alive as a, as a continuation of how verse 4 started. 
with but God. We see this, this huge transition taking place between this, this ugly picture that Paul's painting in verses 1 through 3 that transitions in verse 4, but God, and it carries on, but God made us alive together with Christ through grace. God's grace has the power to save the most wretched of sinners. Christianity is not about becoming a nicer person, nor is it about becoming uh, or, or starting a, a new religious routine. Christianity is about becoming a new person. It's not about becoming a nicer person or a more polished individual. It's about becoming a, a new creation, a new person. Paul also tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verses 1 through 3 has passed away. That putrid, horrifying picture that Paul has painted for us has passed away. And what has come is new, is a new creation. Jesus himself talks about this in John 3, 3b. says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. New creation, you must be born again. So the question for us this morning is, is there anyone that you have counted off as unworthy of the grace of God? No one is beyond the reach of God's regenerating grace. And no one is beyond the need of God's regenerating grace. Let me say that again. Not a single one of us is beyond the reach of God's regenerating grace. Think of maybe the, the most horrific sinner you can think of. The person who, who rapes a child. The person who commits terrible acts. Maybe think of Adolf Hitler who murders millions and millions of Jews. Not a single one of them is beyond the reach of God's regenerating grace. Same is true for us. doesn't matter how good we think we are. doesn't matter how often we attend church, how often we, we do the right things, we live rightly within our society. None of us is beyond the need of God's regenerating grace. Let's take a look at verses 6 through 7. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We see here two things that, you'll, that we can follow along with our, our insert there in the bulletin. Uh, in Christ, God has raised us up and God has seated us with him. Saw so first of all in verse 5 that, that God has made us alive, but he has also raised us up and seated us with him. Man, notice the eternal marveling of God's love in these verses. Maybe think, of, maybe think of the great reversal that has taken place between verses 1 through 3 and what we've seen so far in verses 4 through 7. Verses 1 through 3 paint this picture of, of dead in our trespasses. Verses 4 through 7, but God has made us alive together with Christ. 1 through 3, we are sons of disobedience. 4 through 7, God has raised us up with Christ. Verses 1 through 3, we are children of wrath. But God has made us recipients of generous mercy, has seated us with Christ. 1 through 3 talks about how we are children of wrath. But 4 through 7, we are recipients of rich grace. Children of wrath or recipients of God's kindness. Children of wrath or trophies of God's grace. Two completely different pictures that Paul is painting us for us here. One, who we are apart from Christ, 
the other who we are in Christ. Trophies of God's grace. Man, grace is a, a really key word in this passage. You'll see that it, it takes place uh, uh, three different times within these, these last few verses. And that kind of brings us to uh, one of our other points is that, that God has shown us great. He, God has not only made us alive, he has raised us up, he has seated us with him, and God has shown us grace. When I was a child, um, my pastor uh, used this uh, analogy uh, or illustration to, to kind of help us picture what was meant by the grace of God. And he used an acronym. Um, you might be familiar with this, and it goes like this. Grace kind of spelled out God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. And that encompasses two different things. It encompasses both, both favor, maybe think of, of Queen Esther when she went before uh, the king, uh, King Hajuerus, I think, at that time. Maybe Xerxes, I don't know. Um, but when Esther went before the king, uh, extended favor to him. She found favor in his eyes. Uh, but it also encompasses not only favor, but also power. Power for what? Power to secure our salvation against the accusations of Satan. Power to secure our salvation against the accusations of Satan. God's riches at Christ's expense. God has shown us great grace. Grace is, is God's unmerited favor upon us. And we see in this passage that grace is a gift. It is a gift of God. Luke writes in, in Acts 18.27 uh, that Apollos helped those who had believed through grace. And here we see a picture of, of exactly what Paul is saying here, that grace is a gift of God. Even believing in the things of God, even having faith, is a gift that God has given to us. Grace is a gift. Because salvation is a divine gift, it cannot be earned. Your moral efforts or religious activity cannot earn salvation. It doesn't matter how good you are. It cannot earn salvation. Why? So that no one may boast. That leads us into verses 9 through 10. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that leads us to our last point. God has not only made us alive, but he has also raised us up. He has also seated us with him. God has shown us grace. And finally, God has called us to work. We do not receive this marvelous grace by doing good things to make ourselves right before God. Why? So that no one can boast. Paul talks about this in, in Romans as well when he's, he's talking about the life of Abraham and the fact that he was considered righteous. And it says in, in Romans 4 too, he says, for if Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, so he's saying here, Abraham was not justified by what he did. He was justified by the faith by the grace that was given to him as a gift from God. And this is huge for our evangelism. The only thing that separates you and me from the worst of sinners is simply the grace of God. Maybe think back to that picture of, of whoever came to your mind when you thought of, of the worst of sinners. And when we think of evangelism, it's a, it's a good reminder to have that the only thing that separates me from that person, whoever it is, is the grace of God, is the fact that his grace has been bestowed upon my life and that we have been called to extend that grace to others. We have been called as ambassadors of Christ to offer that grace to those around us. God has prepared 
work for us to do. As we think back through this passage, man, we have seen some amazing things. We've seen, first of all, some amazing depths in verses 1 through 3. Amazing depths of, of us being dead. We are dead. We are sons of disobedience. We are children of wrath. It doesn't get any lower than that. Some amazing depths. But it's gone from amazing depths to amazing heights. And the fact that God has raised us up and God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. So we go from amazing depths to amazing heights. How? By an amazing grace. An amazing grace that has been given to us as a gift from God. And it leads to an amazing call. God has taken us from amazing depths to amazing heights through an amazing grace to give us an amazing call. What is that amazing call? Man, I hope tons of things are popping in your mind. All kinds of amazing uh, commands that God has given to us in Scripture. Three come to my mind. First of all, the Great Commission. Man, the fact that we are all called to go and make disciples of all nations. That is an amazing call that God has given to each and every single one of us. God has also called us to, to love God and love neighbor. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. To love God with all that is within you. Every single thing you do should be affected by the love that you have for God. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. What an amazing call, because some of us have some pretty rotten neighbors. We are called to love that neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Great call that God has called us to. Last one that I want to mention is Acts 1.8. And the fact that we are called to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is part of the vision that Pastor Allen has laid out for us and the fact that we are called to, to be his witnesses in wherever God has placed you, in your workplace, in your family, in, in your local hangout places, in whatever you do. Are you being a witness for God in the, in the way that he has called you to? And that's the last thing I want to leave us with is this challenge. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to bring others to this Jesus? Are we as the, the body of Christ willing to do whatever it takes to bring those around us to Christ so that they can go from death to life, so that they can be transferred from the picture that's painted in verses 1 through 3 to the picture that's painted in verses 4 through 10? This is a challenge that I've been issuing to our, our students uh, to, to really just pick one, pick one person in their life that God has placed in their life that they are going to do whatever it takes to bring them to Christ. Starts with prayer, interceding before them for them every single day. Then being bold in every opportunity that God gives you to proclaim the gospel, to live out the gospel before them, to point them to Christ. And the third, persistence. It may not happen overnight. In fact, it most likely will not happen overnight. It may take weeks, months, possibly years before you see any fruit from your faithful praying, your faithful sharing. Be persistent in, in trying to draw them to Christ and, and doing whatever it takes. And this, this really hits home for me as well. Um, and I hope it hits, hits home for you as much as it does for me. I mean, one thing that God's really been hammering me on recently uh, as I've been reading through the CBR journal is uh, my faithfulness and, and being bold with the gospel. Um, one thing that, that God's been bringing to my mind is, is I've, I've got the opportunity, I, I play basketball with a group of guys on Tuesday night, some of the, some of the men from here from the church, 
But uh, the majority of the people that we play with are lost, are, are unbelievers. And God has really been hammering me with this idea of how faithful of a witness have you been on Tuesday nights? Have you been faithful to share the gospel with any of those people you play ball with? I've played ball with them for, for several months and unfortunately have, have been more unfaithful in being a witness for Christ than I have in boldly sharing the gospel and boldly proclaiming who Christ is in my life. And so I hope this hits home for you guys just as much as it hits home for me. This is something that all of us need to improve on. This is something that all of us need to take seriously. Are we willing to be obedient to the amazing call that God has given to us? As the band comes on stage, um, I'm going I'm to pray for us. And, and I want us to, to consider, are we willing to do whatever it takes to bring those to us to Christ? We're going to have the opportunity here to respond, and there's several different ways you can respond. You can respond either by, by coming up to the altar. The altar will be open for prayer. I'll be down here and would love to talk to you about what God's doing in your life. Um, you can stay there and sing praises to God. You can pray within your pew. So many different ways that you can respond to God. And this response does not end here with the song. Um, this response is, is an ongoing uh, reaction within your life of, of how do you respond on a day-by-day basis. So let me, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll have the opportunity to respond here. Father, Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to declare the word of God. Lord, I pray that you would allow me and allow everyone here to be obedient to, to what you're calling us to do, Father. Lord, you have given us an amazing call. Lord, help us to be obedient to that amazing call. Lord, help us to, to love you in a, in a way that um, displays the fact that you have brought us from death to life, Lord. The fact that, that we were once dead, we were once sons of disobedience, we were once children of mankind, of, of children of wrath, Lord. But by the grace of God, you have raised us to new heights. You have bestowed grace upon us in a beautiful and immeasurable way, Lord. Help us to be faithful in declaring that grace to other people. Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.